Welcome to the Wamda Capital Podcast. I'm Khaled Talhouni, managing partner of the firm. We recently held our first annual LP event, uh, which brought together some of our investors with some of our portfolio companies. The purpose of the event was really to give our investors a sense of what we're doing, a look at our investment strategy, and an opportunity to meet some of our portfolio companies. Um, as part of that event, we held a panel on the state of the startup ecosystem in the region. The startup panel included uh, Mudassar Sheikha, CEO and founder of Karim, Ronaldo Mshahwar, uh, CEO of Souq Group, Jonathan Laban, Managing Director of Facebook for Middle East, Africa and Pakistan, and Muna Ataya, CEO and founder of Mums World. Some of the topics they discussed were trends and consumption habits in the region and their evolution over time, the state of the funding ecosystem and what investors look for. And then they took some questions from the audience, which included some of our entrepreneurs, but also some of our investors as well. This was a live event, so apologies for the quality of the sound. We've tried to improve it as much as possible. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for coming. Paris Gandur, I'm partner at Wamda Capital, and I have a great set of panelists today. It's going to be challenging because they have a lot that they cannot reveal, I'm sure, but I'll try to get as much as I can. We have Jonathan Levin, who is uh, the managing director of Facebook um, in Africa and the Middle East, as well as Pakistan. We have Muna Ataya, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Mom's World. We have Mudassar Sheikha, who's the co-founder and CEO of Karim, and of course, Ronaldo Mshahwar, who is the CEO at Sukh.com. Um, to get started, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, I'll start with you, Ronaldo. You have the largest e-commerce company in the Middle East. Um, growth is, I'm sure, still spectacular. Some of the stuff, you know, the growth rates are at, at levels that even seed stage companies don't see. Um, how does that speak to the general e-commerce trend in the region, and where is that going to? I mean, definitely, I think we're over the, the myth that consumers in the region don't buy online. Actually, they research everything online. Uh, we have around 18 million uniques who come to our platform. Uh, I think half of Saudi, half of the UAE somehow end up visiting our site. So customers are definitely online uh, savvy and they're buying. We're seeing growth rates depending on the market between, I would say, 45 to 60% year on year. That's the rate we see. Uh, Egypt could be a lot faster, but because of the currency and a lot of the issue with disrupted supply, you don't get the consistency. And also, if you translate the growth to dollars, you end up losing another 20% due to currency. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's still a very exciting time we still I think sign up amazing numbers of new buyers every uh, m month and the key is uh, mobile and consumers accessing the platform through mobile so has the region reached an inflection point you think or are we still getting there in terms of uh, mobile adoption and um, how are you noticing consumption trends changing as people purchase on mobile and on the go so I think uh, the mobile user definitely uh, frequents the site more often. Uh, so that's definitely, so his lifetime value, if you even assume similar conversion, you end up with a better lifetime value of a customer on the mobile platform. Have we seen an inflection point? I think this year we're seeing uh, definitely a change of the perspective of brands and distributors to online. So two, three years ago, 
with the economies in the region growing probably at a very fast rate, there was little being uh, allocated or attention paid to online channels. Today, we're engaged with every global or local brands. Our supply on the platform doubled maybe to near 2 million products in a very short period of time, maybe six to eight months. And we had brands that initially, uh, it was they don't either, neither the licensee or the brand wanted to go online in the region. That appetite has changed quite a bit. And I think we're getting close to a, a decent tipping point. Um, Muna, uh, you speak of Mom's World uh, as a community, and it is very much so. How does that, how does building a community around moms and children sort of uh, change the way people are consuming online, uh, be it purchasing or even consuming content? Because a big driver of conversion for you isn't sort of traditional online marketing. It's more content, it's more events, it's more showing presence and partnerships with various brands. How do you go about building yourself as a community versus you know, portraying yourself as a storefront? So what our consumer looks for is not just the pure play e-commerce solution. She really is looking for that go-to destination where she can get her A to Z experience fulfilled. So what does that mean? That means a mother today will more likely trust her, her school, her doctor, um, her friend for the purchase recommendation as opposed to just a store, whether it's online or offline. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach the consumer at all touch points, from the time she's pregnant, in her third trimester of pregnancy, all the way until the child essentially goes through his or her milestones, uh, baby stage, two year, four years, etc. There was research uh, done recently that said that 68% of purchase decisions for mothers are done in the th uh, third trimester of pregnancy. And if you're able to reach a mother during that third trimester, you essentially have captured her for two years. So imagine the power of that loyal consumer, and you don't find that anywhere else. Um, so in order for us to essentially um, build that loyalty, we have to make sure that our first touch point with that consumer is bulletproof, that she's getting um, a trusted, seamless, personalized experience, and that she knows that she can keep coming back to you again and again for her mandatory requirements as well as the, the nice-to-haves. So again, you know, in, in a nutshell, a mother is looking for trusted expertise as opposed to just a store to walk into and walk out of. And are you noticing any sort of change in consumption behavior uh, via social selling at all? Because that's, you know, um, social and chat-based selling is becoming more and more prevalent in the, in the region and beyond. Since mobile is, you know, some, so for a lot of people, mobile is the first avenue of, of access to the internet and hence access to e-commerce. Uh, are you getting into social selling? So just for perspective, uh, we launched our Arabic Instagram account um, targeting the Saudi customer um, just under a year ago. And our Saudi numbers went through the roof. And this is essentially mothers engaging with each other, asking questions about the product. So them coming in through Instagram and through WhatsApp saying, I want to buy this, give me more information about this. So social is extremely powerful for our particular community. Um, videos are also uh, very powerful. Again, when you marry the video to the social experience, whether it's YouTube or other, that also has a lot of uh, mileage. 
Jonathan, um, in my head, I can compartmentalize Facebook in so many different ways. But the most prevalent ones, the way I see it is, there's um, content consumption, content creation, but then there's also some of the sci-fi stuff we see, like AR, AI, VR. Um, let's start with content, though, specifically in the region. Is Facebook able today, or in the future, will you be able to become a platform where content creators can go direct to Facebook and monetize directly off of Facebook traffic? Or is there still a need for Facebook to create partnerships with publishers or um, you know, new media companies? I think we're actually in a really interesting point of time right now if you think about the content on Facebook and other platforms, Instagram, but any other platform as well, digital and especially on mobile. If you think about the content that's being shared and being consumed a few years ago, it was all about text. And then over the last few years, it was all about images. And now we've seen this sudden and huge shift towards video. So video is playing a bigger and bigger role for us in terms of what people share, but also what people consume. And that's been quite dramatic. And I think it's a big opportunity for companies out there because content on mobile is a little bit different. I think, you know, if you think about what we heard earlier about commerce, things on mobile are a little bit different than they are on, on desktop. A lot of similarities, but a lot of things are also different. So I think there's actually on the content side, there's two big opportunities. One is around creating content that really fits mobile feeds. Because the way we consume on mobile is in feeds today. This is, all, this is all we do all day long, right? So we go through feeds. And mobile feeds is a big opportunity for content creators. Um, AJ Plus actually did a good job in thinking about how do you create content that is just done for mobile feeds. Tasty is another good example, like billions of views for mobile feeds. I think the other opportunity is, the other really interesting that's coming up right now, we're kind of at this inflection point, is I think live. So yeah, there's a lot of obviously other players as well, but we are betting big on live now because we believe this will explode as well. Um, you can even integrate your, you know, now buy an API, your proper TV equipment with live, so that's exploding as well. And we're working on, on creating solutions for the content creators as well to monetize. We're testing a lot of things for them to monetize, but they're doing already a lot because they see a lot of distribution um, coming via Facebook. There's a lot of traffic being generated via Facebook today. Um, Mudassir, you have insight into um, a city, an urban, uh, a, the youth, the urban youth's daily, daily commuting schedules, pretty much. What, what does that look like, and how, how are you observing change in the way people commute in the region nowadays, uh, specifically in, 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 in dense urban uh, geographies like Dubai, Riyadh, and elsewhere? Yeah, thanks, Faris. Um, so uh, we almost have a pulse on the on the activity in the city. You know, when there's a rain in Riyadh, we feel it in our numbers. <laughs> so we know sometimes even before some things are happening that something is up, and then we investigate what's happening and we find out. So um, what we are seeing more and more is when we first started, we started as a service that was meant for business travelers who were traveling the region. And the patterns that we would see initially were a lot of people live in Dubai, they work in Riyadh, Jeddah, Kuwait. So every Sunday morning, there'd be a big rush to go to the airport. And then we would see these passengers come out in Riyadh, they'd take a trip to uh, their hotel, their office, and so forth. Uh, this is what we were seeing before. And we would see the Thursday evening um, rush, a lot of people going out uh, 
for dinner and going out. What we're seeing more and more now is that the service is becoming a, a little bit more integrated in people's lives. So we are being used for daily commute. I and mean, people are using us to go to work and come back from work on a daily basis. Uh, we are being used to go to the malls. We are being used to go to cafes. So it is becoming a much and much bigger part of people's lives uh, as the service has grown. And some of the growth has been driven by the increase in uh, affordability of the service. So when we started, the minimum price that we were charging for a trip was 40 dirhams. So if you had to go from here to there, we would charge you 40 dirhams. That was the price that was prevailing in the market. And that's because the utilizations were relatively low. We were only keeping the car busy for three hours a day. But all of a sudden, as you get more traffic on the same car, you're able to work the car 10 hours or 12 hours a day, then you don't have to charge 40 dirhams anymore. You can charge 16 dirhams, which is what we charge today. And then all of a sudden, 16 dirham price point makes possible a lot of different use cases. So the price point coming down, the ETA is getting better, are enabling a lot more use cases than that, that were not possible before. So the, at face value, the natural way for Karim to expand beyond just you know, transporting people or trans, you know, expanding geographically, um, what, what does uh, Karim look like in five years? I know that's a really far, far way ahead, but what does it look like in terms of providing ancillary services? So um, is it package delivery? Is it food delivery? Is it uh, you know, beyond transporting people to and from you know, A yeah. to B? So as I said in my presentation as well, we see this as a platform to move, to go from point A to point B. And the addressable market is not just the movement of people. So if anyone, a person or a thing, needs to move from point A to point B, that's addressable. And that's what we need to go after. Now, the passenger transport opportunity in our markets is so massive that as a startup that has limited resources, we have to purely focus on passenger transport. Uh, and some of it is driven by the lack of infrastructure in our cities. Uh, people talk about disruption, and we often tell people there is not much to disrupt. And keep in mind that in Dubai, we live in a bubble, right? As soon as you step out of Dubai, the real Middle East uh, uh, is, is more evident. And the real Middle East, including places like Pakistan and others, there is not much real public transport infrastructure, right? So in some ways, we are building the infrastructure that will power these cities' uh, logistics and transportation needs. So the opportunity is massive because there is nothing else to, to rely on. Uh, so our focus for the next two years is just build this infrastructure use passenger transport as a vehicle to build it. And over time, this distribution, this infrastructure can be used to power a lot more things. Uh, Ronaldo, uh, the, you know, e-commerce and retail is massive, and e-tail is, is even bigger. And, and, you know, we haven't even scratched the surface, arguably, in the region. Um, but that still begs the question of, is there a natural path for Sukh to, to go beyond retail and into, you know, content and, and, and video and, and music streaming and, and various types of uh, digital goods? Um, and how, how will that manifest itself vis-a-vis -vis a culture that consumes using cash on delivery? So for us, I mean, our mission is uh, connecting more people with more products using technology. That's kind of the overarching mission of our company. Every sub-company of our business acts on that uh, promise and tries to deliver various services. So clearly, uh, digital is a product. Will it be virtual? So there will be the time and the need where we deliver product. We have been hindered by payment as a way to scale these services. And, and today, I, to be honest with you, with the, 
the barrier to entry on these on mobile has come down quite a bit. So we see companies who deploy digital products are able to do it on mobile globally quite a bit. If you look at, for example, uh, an e-commerce company, probably the first American or Chinese e-commerce company to look outside took them six years, seven years, because they had to do so much on their own. Today, if you're a digital service, you Uber is a, is a good example in Karim's case where they have not done even their own market. They were able to deploy globally in multiple markets because it's, the service is quite digital, while Uber still have probably even a physical element to it. When you come to books and content and Play Store and Facebook apps and, and uh, e-books and so forth, there, there's less barriers in terms of deployment because the channel you de deploy most of digital services on mobile is through either iTunes or the, the Google Play. So we've shied away from this because we didn't feel we had the local content, maybe Allah can able to build the local books and this will be a good case for us to work with someone who has local content and deploy it to our customer base. Payment is definitely an issue. Um, within our portfolio, we have pay for it, they eat, breathe payment. Uh, our first was credit card. That is kind of quite underway in terms of how much of your credit cards are accepted online. People little know that even if you have a credit card, not all banks honor it online, so there was a big hurdle there. Now we've moved to debit cards and networks, so our next big challenge, can we get a debit card to work online, similar to what happens in the US, because actually every debit card is either a Visa or a MasterCard, so there's an opportunity there. And then I think once we get the debit cards, we also would look at alternative payment methods, so we have pay at store, pay at home, but I think they're not efficient. They're quite cost, uh, not cost effective, because you have the transport leg in them and that makes the payment not one-to-one -one and not efficient. That's why COD has grown quite a bit on delivery because you are bringing the product anyway, so it's quite efficient to collect the cash versus getting paid at one point and then And it's convenient for later. the consumer. And it's quite easy because it's kind of a building trust. So, so I think digital has been delayed, but uh, you see now with mobile, everyone has a mobile phone. I doubt no one has a, a face, a, a, you know, a, an account on their mobile. So through either the telcos, I guess, or through these, uh, uh, you'll be able to deploy dig di digital quite faster. So, Muna, I want to get into um, the question of fundraising. You've, uh, you've recently raised a, a large round of, of financing, but, but your company's been around for a while. How, how do you see the funding landscape? How has it evolved since you first started out to today? And is there room for more capital for uh, businesses like yours that are building communities and, and, and targeting various avenues of, uh, you know, being a mom, be it through content, through, through selling, through whatever it may be. I always say um, a business can always grow as far and as fast as the money you have sitting in the bank. So you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the resources to build it, then it's, it's really worthless. Um, the, the fundraising landscape, from our perspective, has actually evolved. When we first launched the business, we had a, um, a, a seed round um, from the founders, um, and that got us to a year and a half of business. And what I mentioned earlier in my presentation, it was really all about building fundamentals, because it's very easy to build top line in e-commerce. That's the easiest part of it. But it's not easy to build fundamentals that will give you a business that's going to be here in the next 10 years. Um, so the first round was all about being smart with the limited cash that we had. Um, we raised our A round super fast. We raised it with um, institutional regional investors as well as super angels. 
and we were oversubscribed in, I think, a week. And that's, I think, a typical story of most um, businesses that are on an uh, upward trajectory. When it becomes more difficult is when you enter that B round and you need more money, and you're no longer a baby, and you're, no longer, and you're not a giant yet. You're kind of in that uh, 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 no-way land. Um, and what you really have to prove is that you have the fundamentals that will allow you to scale. Um, for us, I think the timing to raise, which is in our, on our fourth year anniversary, was the perfect timing. Why is that? Because we were forced in the past year to really dig deep and say, what can we do with very little? How can we continue to double and triple our business with you know, very little money, very few resources, um, an infrastructure that's not sophisticated, and an ecosystem that's underdeveloped. And it's that, I think, that forces you to be creative, that forces you to be innovative, and forces you to really um, uh, anchor down on the fundamentals. Um, and um, the round basically closed when, when you did that. And now it's a scale game. Um, when, you have other, when you have money that belongs to investors, you have a commi commitment and a responsibility to start growing very fast um, and very smart. Um, so I think it, it, the, the long and short of it is, yes, the ecosystem continues to evolve, um, but it needs to go uh, still a long way to kind of uh, um, embrace the, the innovative ideas out there and, and help them grow. Sure. Um, Mudassar, I know that you're at the stage where you've, you know, you, 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 I, I think we can safely say you've achieved a lot of scale so far and you're continuing to grow, obviously, but um, when you go out and raise a, a round that's, you know, 50, 60, 100 million plus, is that something that you're finding uh, more difficult in terms of, uh, you know, the type of investor you're after? Are they focusing on liquidity more so than earlier stage investors? Are they you know, sort of pushing for an exit or pushing for one metric over uh, another that, you know, might not be uh, the case when, when you were raising smaller rounds of financing? Yeah, so I think the, uh, interestingly, there seems to be more big money in the region than small money. Yeah. So I'm finding it a little bit easier to raise big money than, than it was to raise small money. I think back to the point that Mona made, right? It's... There's, there's a lot of angel investors that will write you $100,000, $200,000 checks, and you can raise a million-dollar round with that. And then there are a lot of people that have deep pockets who are willing to write $50, $100 million checks. There are fewer people in the middle. You know, Vamda is, of course, one of them, but there are not that many Vamdas in the region. So uh, the profile of the investors change, but uh, the, uh, as you said, the objectives of the investors change as well in the way they both manage the business in the way they, they want the uh, exit to come. So in our case, you know, I think the, uh, the investor, the last investor that came on board, Abraj, uh, of course, they're a private equity investor. So um, their way of engaging is, is a bit different. They're more actively involved than, than let's say, other venture, type of, venture capital type of investors. But we see this as a, as a huge positive. We love working with them. Uh, we treat our investors as an extension of our team. So. Um, we are, we are happy to bring them in, we're happy to give them assignments, we're happy to get their help. Uh, so it works uh, quite nicely for us. Uh, but they also force you to become a lot more professional. You know, they, they push the bar on the kind of maturity you need in the leadership team, the kind of dashboards you should be looking at, the kind of reporting you need to do. So um, 
I guess it's all a part of growing up, and, and we're glad to have an investor like that that is pushing us to, to, to grow quickly. Excellent. Um, Jonathan, to that point, you know, Facebook's one of the largest tech companies in the world. How do you see yourselves as a facilitator of growth for some of the earlier stage companies that are here today that are also in the you know, internet and, and, and tech space? So we, we basically think about it in three ways. We want to help companies to build, to grow, and to monetize. It's the kind of the three buckets that we think about. When it comes to building, we provide quite a lot of tools that help um, startups to build, in particular apps, mobile apps, because that's kind of our specialty, our focus area. Um, so we do a lot there. Um, we do analytics for free. We do push notifications for free. So we do quite a lot of things there that help them. You know, could Facebook connect registration? There's a lot there that helps startups to, to get off the ground, basically. On top of that, there are initiatives like Facebook Start, where you know, young startups get you know, um, services, ad credits, just test stuff. Um, so that's, the, that's kind of the building element of it. Then there's the growing element of it. There's, there's organic growth. Again, by integrating with Facebook, sharing, inviting friends, but also you know, an advertising solution that hopefully drives impact for them, right? So if you are a mobile app today, or if you are a mobile player, um, you know, Facebook really helps to grow, right? By investing in advertising, smart advertising, targeted advertising, it helps you achieve your results. And so that's really driving your business growth. That's what we're all after, helping these businesses to grow in a smart way. And then last but not least, also to monetize. Um, and there's different elements to it. We have particular companies um, that have an audience on their apps. So what we allow them to do is to plug into the Facebook audience network and say um, they get access to our demand from advertisers. So if, if you're an advertiser out there and say, you know, I advertise, you know, advertise to someone, a male that is interested in football and between the ages of, of 18 and 35, we can deliver that audience on Facebook but since we're identity-based, and everything at Facebook identity, we can also deliver that audience on, on a partner app, for example, that, that plugs into audience network. So we help them to monetize as well. So that's how we think about helping uh, the ecosystem build, grow, and monetize. Excellent. Um, since we're a little bit short on time, I want to leave some room for questions from, from the audience. Is there anything you guys would like to know from some of our panelists? Um, so my, my question is uh, towards how, how things evolve, how, how, how metrics evolve. Um, so if I were to ask you, um, what do uh, perhaps one of the main metrics look like as you scale? Um, and the main metrics that I'm thinking about are um, uh, the percentage of audi audience you get from different channels, so like paid, versus um, uh, organic direct, uh, how, does that, how does that change? Um, and the second thing is, um, as, as you push for growth, how does, uh, how does uh, uh, cost of acquisition versus uh, what you get back in a shorter time frame change? Um, so I think uh, in terms of traffic, clearly your, your mature markets end up having less paid traffic and a lot more free traffic. And, you can measure share of paid uh, versus free and definitely share of direct and app launches in terms of mobile. So as in time, you'll see less paid and a lot more frequent because especially on mobile, using some data analytics, you're able to drive your repeat buying base. I think from an acquisition cost, initially you look at cost per acquisition,
quite a bit for new buyers. And then as you scale up, you start looking at revenue per spend on, or profitability per spend. So the metrics changes from acquiring buyers and growing the base to more how much money you make as you spend on new buyers versus existing buyers. And we have different markets at different stages, so we have to make sure we still are able to do all the six things that I just so I think for us, we're still a little bit earlier stage than, than Souk, so we're still focused on the cost for acquisition. Uh, but what we see is, uh, you know, the, the, the first people that come onto the platform, they're, of course, the early adopters. They're probably the big spenders. So the cost for acquisition is, is a lot lower in the beginning because you're basically getting the low-hanging fruit, and their lifetime value is much, much higher because these are the guys that will use the platform. As in some of the markets, we have reached slightly higher levels of adoption, the cost for acquisition does go up and the LTV starts to shrink. So you, we are seeing a trend of the ratio of LTV to CAC uh, coming down from, let's say, something like five to six to something like a four, uh, which is still pretty healthy, but it is shrinking uh, as you start uh, going into different segments that are not directly needing the service. So I think, I mean, we're in technology, we're technology driven while we're a retail company. Uh, and a platform, we're quite driven by technology, so I think you just gotta make sure your innovation, speed of innovation as the company grows, remains. So you have to launch new things. We'll only achieve the growth rates we want to achieve by adding, for example, new capabilities or new verticals. So I think the ability to continuously adopt while not disrupting the, the big business that you have starts becoming something you think about. We never thought about what happens here if we do this. Today we have a business here and we're adding a new capability, so we want to make sure. The second thing is we're always thinking uh, to ways to see if we can disrupt ourselves. So uh, in logistics, in, in payment, we're always looking at acquisition, partnerships, investments to see what can be done better to reduce that cost because ultimately we know the margin and you just have to continually you you reduce your OPEX to a lever that you become very viable and profitable. I think what we have seen in our last round in terms of questions have always been A, what's happening in your region. Unfortunately, the timing wasn't the best for this region in terms of either political or oil. So we get a lot of questions on those. Uh, second, if you're bringing in someone who's new to the region, what is this region? So people don't have a lot of awareness of what is able. We were lucky in this round to bring people who've never invested in the region, but quite formidable uh, venture capitalists who've invested in big businesses across the globe. Uh, and, and the thing, there's a lot of also question in terms of compliance and, and legal and how these different countries work together, borders and borderless, so managing those. From the business side, it's all about speed and innovation. From fundraising, it's about the ecosystem and the ambient as the company becomes bigger, these things start becoming more prevalent and asked about versus two, three years ago. Um, the first, we started SU 206, so we're not very young. First six years, no one asked us anything. We didn't raise any capital. We were just kind of under the radar building the business with very little as we said. But then once you hit the tipping point, you need to make sure that your business is well capitalized. So I, we, in a way, you always fundraise for that business, regardless if you need it or not. Actually, you probably when you don't need the money, because when you need it, you're not going to be able to get it. Actually, my question is to you, as well, Ronaldo, and to Modesser. Talk about speed, Ronaldo, and the uh, ability to stay nimble and all of this, but reputation has it that when you're dealing with startups, you're still looked at as a very slow organization in terms of M&A or investment. How do you balance between that? How do you keep the balance of you, know, you growing very fast, but still needing to be nimble? And then for Modesser, 
you've acquired a few companies as well in the past few years. You grew by position. Your experience on that and how should companies, as they scale, startups as they scale, think about that? I mean, two things. I believe uh, we try to create these CEOs that run different parts of the business. It, it's a bit more difficult because you're not under all the suit brand. So we felt finance, investing in finance is quite important for us in terms of what payment and finance can bring to Souq. If you wanted to do it under the Souq umbrella with all the compliances we have and all the type of due diligence and size and risk on business, it felt this was a big risk. So we ended up giving Omar in pay for the initiative to invest and do whatever he wants. He has a fund, he has a lab, he can bring people into the company even if they're not employees and work with them. So by a bit breaking the business down, we're able to at least overcome the speed because if we want to do everything at the mother company, it became hard. Uh, also, some of the interests might not be aligned. So we might have a project that's similar project, uh, for example, gifting. We want to do this, but Payford can do it faster or invest in a company faster. So that's, that's on the first question. What was the second question? Uh, second question was both to you and Mudassar on as you scale, growing my acquisition, is that something that you'd like to do more of? And what would be your tips to some of the fast-growing startups that are not finding the talent and see it in other I mean, I think for us, uh, we bring, what we see with, with acquisition for us is two things. If the entrepreneur is hungry to grow and is able to benefit from the suit buyer base or scale that we have, then it's a good marriage. What we see difficult is with the entrepreneurs, and rightfully so for them, how do you think of equity and exit when you're part of something bigger? Do you tie your future to suit or not? So those are some of the things we continuously balance with. We find it a lot easier to roll in the company within the platform, maybe do some swap sharing, some payout, and just be very aligned on where suit needs to go in the next three years versus having a, a bit of misalignments. And we've done both. When we've done the complete acquisition in logistic, in payment, it has worked great. When we've done a semi-acquisition in category, uh, we ended up not sharing a lot of our buyer base because those are suit buyers, not the company, the new company that invested in buyer, and hence the commercial agreement uh, didn't work to where we wanted. So if the entrepreneur is aligned with the Souk vision, he sees uh, uh, his growth can accelerate a lot faster. We can always structure the agreement in a way that he is he's rewarded on his payout, but we're all aligned on the Souk group mission and what we're trying to do in the short, at least medium term. And for us, uh, Habib, the, uh, we fundamentally believe that we will win if we have the best talent on board. And these acquisitions have been a way to just get the right talent on board. Uh, we, have a we have a set culture that we're trying to cultivate within the company, and being entrepreneurial is one of them. So we find entrepreneurs that are doing things that are relevant to our business as the best people to get on board one way or the other. So these acquisitions have been a phenomenal way to get those talented entrepreneurs on board. And by the way, I think nimbleness is, is equally important for big companies as well. I think like if we think about ourselves, um, you know, we only 12,000 people globally, which is for a company like Facebook, much smaller than our competition is. If we think about us here on the ground, it's only about 30 people on the ground, which is extremely nimble. And, and the reason is, I think for us, is that we also try to have a culture where we get things done, where everyone needs to contribute. And if we think about the biggest threats that we have, um, Internal execution is probably the biggest one, right? It's always about executing, about reinventing yourself. So um, um, that's, I think, the most important thing. And being nimble is a big part of that. Deciding what not to do is a big part of that as well. Simple question. Where, where do you see your next round of funding coming from? Is it from the region? Because we have 
different uh, sizes of companies on stage. I would love to hear that as an entrepreneur. Do you see your next round of funding coming from the region or from outside? And where do you see yourself going forward with the company? Toward an exit or an IPO or something else? This is you or me? I think all of us will probably have to answer this one, at least the three of us, unless uh, Jonathan wants to comment as well. Uh, we actually like uh, regional investors. We believe that they can add a lot more value uh, to us in the Middle East. So um, if you've seen all the rounds that we've done in the past, they've all been quite strategically aligned with the countries and the markets that we wanted to go in. So I, mean, I think our next round, if and when it happens, will be with a regional investor. Now, having said that, we do believe that international investors add a different sort of value, uh, and I think they can be uh, a little bit more value add on the strategy side uh, and on the uh, benchmarking side and sort of creating, creating global PR for the business. So I think there is a value for international investors in the capital, we believe, but uh, we have been blessed and we have been very happy with the regional investors that have come on board. I think uh, from the Mums World perspective, I, I would second that. Um, the, the ideal marriage would be a combination of regional and global for different reasons. So the regional investor, because they are close to the business, um, are aligned with the, the, the DNA of the ecosystem. Um, and at the end of the day, we're building a, you know, a business for the region. So having the regional investors makes a strategic sense. What the global investor brings to the table is that global perspective, that global connection, and for a brand like Mumsworld, so for us, um, M&A possibilities is, is something that we look for in the, in the future um, as we build that largest community of, of, of mothers, um, and access to that can be either regional or, or in fact, uh, global. So, uh, so I think uh, we started with regional, very local, be it first initially Maktoub, Fadi, few others. Um, I think the growth came when we really benchmarked ourselves against the top companies in the world. Uh, when we looked at what Naspers and Tiger has invested in globally, and these guys were growing at incredible rates. So suddenly growing in 10, 8, 15% a month just didn't look good enough when we look at these companies that were scaling. So I think we got a lot of expertise from the international and their appetite to the to the business model. This last round, there was a lot more financials, institutions and banks and World Bank, and this was more for us to be ready from a procedure compliance as the company got bigger. Are we doing the right things uh, in terms of uh, labor, in terms of environment, in terms of uh, money laundering laws, in terms of all the things around all the businesses we have, are we compliance within the markets we operate in? So it brought a bit of maturity to the, to the team and the legal team and the finance team that was managing it. So each one gives us a different perspective. In the last round also, there was quite few uh, local or local funds. So we kind of have the best of both worlds. I think if you're not sure of how the space is evolving, having someone strategic has done some of the things that you want to go through, at least you avoid uh, some mistakes uh, that you can overcome. And I think it's great to be benchmarked uh, among global companies versus maybe the, the local. So I think there is some merit into, into that. Uh, but definitely when we started, be it with Samih and Fadi and the initial investors, and now in this round, having a bit on the ground, as Nbasser said, quite helpful for us. 
maybe a question on exit. So as, just from, from a founder's perspective, you know, when you bring in investors, obviously you start having requests in terms of exit horizon, et cetera. But from a founder's perspective, how do you think about exit as and when you take money externally? Is this driven by returns expectations? Is this driven by the right time for the company from a strategic perspective? Is this driven by challenges that you cannot solve and you feel like it's the right time to maybe do a trade sale? Uh, how, how really, from a founder's perspective, you think about the exit as, as you go forward? I mean, for us, it's, we, have a, we have a business plan that we're trying to execute, and there are milestones not really, really related to exit, but to the business plan itself. And I think we know at these milestones, the business becomes very healthy and, and very attractive uh, to do what we were in our control. If you ask me today, the only control we can have is to see how this company can ultimately get listed. Uh, I'm not sure this is the road that suit would take versus uh, other, other possible routes. Uh, we just focus on our, on our business plan. But I think the compliance part, as you grow, you have to be a lot better at the procedures you follow internally, at the financial systems that we use. We finally went ahead and put a formidable finance system, then the homegrown systems that we had, just to kind of get ready uh, from the size-wise to deal with the business. And you want the metrics to be reflected as instant as possible. And as you grow, just building that technology and, 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 and data capability uh, is, the, is the key for us. That's how I have a plan, and I just want to make sure that as we grow, we're, we're, uh, we're, we have the data and the right metrics shared across quite a, a large number in the organization in a controlled manner. If I, if I may as well, um, I think we have a slightly more romantic view on this, uh, on this question of exits. Um, we think it's a bit sad that uh, we haven't had a major success from the region. And we need our own Facebook, we need our own Google. And I think if we have one of those, then I think, inshallah, a lot of amazing things will happen for the region. So um, we would love to figure out how we can take it all the way and become that institution from the region that will not only create a lot of wealth for the rank and file in our, in our, in our ranks, but also uh, be a role model and start uh, driving uh, this kind of activity in the region. So that's the ideal outcome. That's what we are shooting for. Let, let's see where, where the future takes us. I think thinking of exit is quite uh, distracting in the team. So you make sure that that conversation is very little part touched upon internally in the company because suddenly you start doing things for that exit. And I just don't think they ever happen the way you, you imagine them. But it's an investor-led question always. Um, as opposed to what value are you building today? Because once you build value, that's what, that's what um, is valuable, as opposed to what's your exit. Uh, and, 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 if you, and, and here, if you think about the global versus the local investors, the global investors are very fine. You're building a great business as long as they're doing it right. They probably have their own terms of how to exit and how, but I think they understand that the key driver is the, just the, the to build a sound fundamental business right. that grows healthily, that over time just improves all its metrics. So even if you look at your call center, that has to improve. If you look at your cost of delivery, that has to improve regardless where you are today. So that's the kind of business you want to build um, and then it happens. I think when you may be at a later stage, then definitely some of the investments, they want to be close to an exit so they know 
you know, because they're committing quite a bit of money, but also they want to be close to the business because they get the data and they're able to make a good decision if an exit happens for them. So there's also value to them. Uh, we have a very big fund invested in Sue, but a fairly smaller amount. And I feel like they're much bigger post versus pre, and they're just kind of sensing that how the management works, how we report, the confidence level in the region, in the regulatory environment, um, things like that, which at a bigger scale can impact you know, how things go. Yeah, and just to add to that quickly before we wrap up, I think for us, even as, a, as institutional investors, and as much as we, we try and do some returns analyses, we are firm believers in, you know, in the basic idea that you know, if you build it, they will come. So just like you guys are saying, you, you, know, you, build, you build a solid business, you build a sound business with the intent of it being a standalone business at one point in time, hopefully sooner than later, um, and exits will follow. And, and there's no doubt about that. The fundamentals of a company have to be there before anything materializes. Um, on that note, I thank you so much for being with us. I wish we could keep going, but unfortunately we can't. Um, we have to move on. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you.